We're going to be turning in Philippians this morning. If you have your Bible and you want to turn there, it's in the New Testament, just past the, the Gospels and Galatians and Ephesians. You should run into it briefly after that. Or it's also printed for you in your bulletin so that you can find it there. I'm sure this week on Thursday, many of you who are going to see family are going to do what many of you probably love to do. It's probably a family tradition that some of you just just long and ache for this moment around the table. Some of you don't like it because uh, you'd rather be doing other things. But it's the moment that you go around, go around and maybe it's, it's grandma or it's grandpa or it's mom or dad, whoever it is, and says, let's go around the table and let's talk about what we're thankful for. Uh, and sometimes it's really big stuff. You know, who knows? One of the kids might say that they're thankful for their new dog, Buster, or something like that. And uh, others might say something a little bit more substantial. But whatever it is, they want to go around the table and give reasons of why they're thankful. Uh, it's a good tradition. I hope that you do something similar to that. That's how we're going to look at this passage here in Philippians chapter 3 this morning. That we're going to see that as Thanksgiving comes upon us, that we want to look at this passage, and I believe Paul gives us many reasons to be grateful. Uh, but this morning he gives us really three specific reasons to be grateful for God's grace this morning. And the first one will be this, as you have kind of a, a roadmap on Google Maps or Waves, Waze or whatever you use to get wherever you're going to go for the holidays, kind of tells you where you're going and where you're heading. We'll do that this morning. So our first road stop this morning will be that we want to be grateful that God's grace radically changes what you most deeply value. That'll be our first road stop this morning, to stop and stare at that grace for a moment. The second road stop will be that God's grace freely gives you the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's something that Paul invites us to be grateful for. And then lastly, as we go around the table, we're grateful because God's grace makes you more and more like Jesus. That'll be our final road stop this morning as we look at this passage and see what we can be thankful for this morning. Let's stand for the reading of God's word together. Philippians chapter 3 verses 7 through 11. Let's give our hearts attention to God's word. He's been talking about his resume of righteousness, how good he's been or how good he was in the past. And then he says this in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. The reading of God's word, which he has given to you because he loves you and he wants you to know him. Let's pray. Father, fill our hearts with gratitude this morning. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to the extravagant grace in this passage that we might see Jesus and Holy Spirit that you would help us know the surpassing worth 
of knowing him. Jesus, in your name that we pray, amen. You may be seated. The first road stop is that we want to see and be grateful for the fact that grace radically changes what you most deeply value. That grace radically changes what you most deeply value. Uh, As in 2019, around this time of year, that Mike Rohr, who lived in California, he's moved since then, uh, his great aunt passed away and... um, uh, she gave her, her uh, great-nephews both a box of comics. And uh, they thought that's really great that she thought about us um, and wanted to give these to us. And both of the brothers, even though they lived in separate states, took the boxes, kind of looked through them, thought, you know, those are some cool comics, but they both went back into the basement and just stayed there for years. Um, until about six months ago, uh, Michael, one of the brothers, was talking to a co-worker and uh, he said, you know, yeah, there's some really neat comics in there. One is, uh, uh, quite a few of them are from the 1930s and 1940s. So it's really neat to kind of look at them. And for some reason, my great uncle had them stacked in pieces of plastic so they couldn't be touched or anything like that. And um, yeah, like the first edition of Batman is in there. That's cool. And the uh, first edition of Superman and even Spider-Man, first edition, is in there. I mean, that's pretty neat, just to have some, some relics and some antiques like that. And the, the co-workers kind of sitting there going, do you know what those are worth? He's like, no, I mean, they're, they're old. They're from like the 30s and 40s. I mean, why would they be really worth that much? And he goes, well, I'll tell you what. You take them to an auction house and see what you think, see what they think you could bring in for them. So he takes them to the auction house, and they tell him, they said, we estimate they'll bring in about two and a half to three million dollars. And so uh, he needed some money at the time, and he goes, well, let's go ahead and put them up for auction. Three and a half million dollars. Thank you, great aunt. Made his day. Something that he didn't know the value of. Someone else had to come along and say, I think you may want to rethink that. And then someone who really knew what they were talking about said, there's more value here than you understand. And it ended up blowing his mind and blowing up his bank account. One of the first things that grace does is it exposes what your heart values. See, when you look at Scripture, almost 900 times the Bible mentions the heart. And the heart does many things. The heart in Scripture thinks. Your heart thinks. Uh, Your heart chooses and wills certain things. Uh, In Scripture, our hearts have emotions and feelings, but but one of the things that our hearts also do is that they value. They assign value to certain things. And so just like, you know, let's say a, a dollar bill here in America. It's a piece of paper, but we assign a dollar's worth of value to that piece of paper. Or a a $5 bill, we assign a certain amount of value to that piece of paper because it has a five on it. Or a $20 bill, all of it is assigned value. And one of the things that the Bible would say is that your heart is constantly assigning value to certain things. And not only is it constantly assigning value to certain things, but sin has broken our value meter so that we highly value 
often what has little value, and that we undervalue what actually has immense value. And Paul is acknowledging here in this text that he did just that, that what he highly valued, we'll come to see, he'll say had, had no value at all. And what he didn't value at all, now he sees as having surpassing worth. But grace exposes what our hearts value. And for Paul, it was, it was religious performance. You can see that in verses 5 and 6 of the previous passage. He talks about how good he was, how faithful he was. And then he starts realizing that all of those things were off. He would look at his religious performance and what he had to bring to God, and he would say, that's gain. To me, that's life. That's everything. Now, just to pause, I, I'm curious. I don't know if for you this morning you would say, my religious performance is what has most value for me this morning. But some of us may say, well, it's my academic performance that has immense value in my life. But maybe ultimate value or my athletic performance or the performance of my uh, financial portfolio. There's something or someone that all of us look to and say, that is life to me. That is everything to me. And Paul will say, if that life and everything in your heart is not knowing Jesus Christ, your value meter is broken. But grace comes and it exposes what our heart values. But grace also comes and freely gives you. Here's the, notice the paradox. Grace freely gives you what is of surpassing value. Notice again in verse 7, what he once looked to for life and everything. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. There it is. Grace has come in and, and freely given to Paul and, and freely given to each of you who trust in Jesus Christ and freely offered to all of you this morning something that is of surpassing value. And that is knowing Christ Jesus. Uh, you'll notice that what grace gives you is a relationship with Christ that is close and intimate. The language here that Paul uses, he says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. You know, knowing in our culture tends to mean that we know about someone, details and uh, you know, facts about their life and their story and things like that. Uh, for Paul, the Hebrew knowing meant closeness, intimacy. It's often used in Scripture the way a husband knows a wife, and a wife knows her husband. It's used in John chapter 10 when Jesus says, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Paul says, I used to value these things and find life in them and consider them everything. They were my world, and now they are lost because of the surpassing value that I have a relationship with Christ that is close and intimate I can say that I know him. Paul says that's of surpassing value. Not just a relationship that is close and intimate, that he knows Christ, but a relationship that is profoundly personal. 
This is the only place in the New Testament where Paul will say this, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Notice what it says. It doesn't say our Lord, though that is profoundly true. Nor does it say Jesus Christ, the Lord. That is equally true. But notice how Paul goes to the to deeply personal and he says that he has the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's my Lord. The one who humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death on a cross is my Lord. The one who rose from the grave and immense power, that is my Lord. The one that Paul writes earlier has ascended to the right hand of the Father and reigns over every season and circumstance and situation in my life is my Lord. And Paul says, that has value to me. That I know Him. It's in fact surpassing value. So grace not only exposes what our hearts value, but it also comes in and freely offers to you and gives you, if you look to Christ by faith, what is of surpassing value. Not that just you know about Christ, but that you can actually know Him in a close, intimate, and personal relationship. Where we speak our hearts to Him in prayer and He speaks to you through His Word, the Bible, that's how you know him and Paul says grace has taught me to value knowing him above all things in fact he begins to compare the value of knowing Christ to other things to everything else that he considered as gain in the past again in verse 8 he says I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish the word that Paul uses there is quite interesting. I will not seek to be uh, more or less explicit or crass as Scripture may be, but I will be just as much as it is. The word that he uses there, scubala, was often written in graffiti in Philippi. And here are two things that it refers to. I will, I will more kind of allude to it than mention it explicitly, but think about either your dog or a dog that you see somebody walking at OVP or in your neighborhood. And you know that thing it does when it squats down and does some business? You know it's Buster or uh, Brutus, whatever the dog's name is. It has to be some cool name, right? And then, you know, you have to do that thing where you, you pick it up in a plastic bag. What you are holding in that plastic bag is what Paul is referring to. Some of your translations say, I consider that as dumb. And he says, you look good and long in that bag. And that's everything that I used to value. More than knowing Christ, that's how much value it has in my life now. I consider it as done. Or take all the scraps of your leftovers on Thanksgiving Day. There they are. They're on your plates. You're scooping it all into the trash. That's Thursday afternoon. Think if your trash, your trash gets taken out on Wednesday of the following week. Think that you go to the, the trash can that you put it all in and 
that Wednesday you kind of open it up before you take it out to the road and you just look, oh, you can barely like, mm. like glad we're getting rid of that. And Paul says, all of the righteousness I had by thinking that I was doing the law, that somehow that would give me gain with God, that's what it's worth in my book now. It's trash. Let him take it away. The thing that has immense and surpassing value is knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Everything else is refuse and dung, he says here. That's our first stop on our travels this morning. As God works gratitude in our hearts, one of the things that grace does is that it radically changes what you most deeply value. Do you value the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord. And one of the great things about God's grace is that we can be honest with Him and say, I do value knowing Christ, but probably not to that degree. And we can say, God, help me. And the Holy Spirit will say, that's what I love to do. I love to help you value Christ more and knowing Him. Well, our second road stop that we want to take to this morning is not only that grace radically changes what you most deeply value, but grace freely gives you the perfect righteousness of Christ. So as we go around the table, Paul again says, here's another reason that we can be grateful this week for all of our lives, is that, that grace freely gives to us the perfect righteousness of Christ. Now, I don't know if you ever had this situation when you were growing up. I know I did. Uh, it was myself, it was my ten, twin brother, it was a lot of cousins, and on Thanksgiving Day, we would always play football before the big meal. And sometimes when we'd go out and play football up in northern Indiana, it was wet, it was damp, and all those kinds of things. When you're doing that, you're just getting covered in mud, you have grass stains all over you, you're sweating. And I remember one time we, we were trying to come into the house, and uh, Grandma opened the door and she looked at me and she goes, you're not coming in here dressed like that? Looking like that, smelling like that. So I was like, okay, what do I do? Thankfully, my mom had brought some extra clothes for me. But even grandma had this standard of, my house is clean for today, and there's no way you're coming in covered in that kind of filth. So somehow take care of that, and then you can come in. That's one of the things that we have to acknowledge about God's presence. That he is righteous and holy. And we are covered in sin. And there's no way we're coming into His house. There's no way that we are standing in His presence dressed like that. And so one of the things that Paul tried to do is kind of wash himself, clean himself, create some new clothes by being good, being moral, being faithful, to the law. That's why one of the things that we have to understand as we step back a little bit is some of our conceptions about Christianity is this. You know, Christianity is, its primary message is you stop doing bad and you start doing good. It's just like that. I had a conversation with someone uh, last week. And as a pastor, you always have either really awkward um, conversations or really fascinating ones. It tends to be one or the other. And often if I'm flying on a plane, and uh, it's like, yeah, yeah, well, where are you going? Where are you flying? Oh, the, you know, nice conversation. And then they ask, well, what do you do? And it's always kind of like, 
I'm always just curious, like, how are they going to respond after this? And I'll say, well, I'm a pastor. And often, just immediately, the earbuds go in and they turn away, start, you know, doodling on their phone. Or sometimes they just start unveiling their hearts. And that's what happened this week. I was talking to a gentleman, probably um, in his late 70s, and we were talking, and he said, so what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. And he said, can I share something with you? Please do. I've been a Christian my whole life, and I feel like I'm experiencing a spiritual awakening. Wow. Would you tell me more? Yes. He said, for decades, what I thought Christianity was, was go to church, read your Bible, and do what the Bible says. Is it good to go to church? Yes. Does God call us to read our Bible? Boy, absolutely. Does he want us to do what the Bible says? He sure does. But is that the essence of the message of Christianity? And he started to quiver a little bit, and he goes, I'm almost 80, and do you know what I'm learning? No. He goes, it's all about Jesus. Not me going to church, not me reading my Bible, not me trying to do, even though I still want to do those things. I'm learning that it's all about Jesus. You know, that's why George Whitfield, who was so active in the First Great Awakening, even here in Georgia, one of the things he would constantly preach is Christianity and the message of the gospel calls us not only to repent and walk away and turn the other way from our sin, but also to repent of our supposed righteousness. That we bring something to the table. And many scholars believe that Paul is referencing here Isaiah, where Isaiah looks at our righteousness and he says our righteousness is like filthy rags. We cannot come into God's presence with our own righteousness. That's why Paul says here in verse 9, he wants to be found in Christ, united to Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. He says, this this righteousness that I think I bring to the table in my relationship with God isn't simply inadequate. We talked about this last week. It's actually abhorrent. It's filthy rags. It doesn't even come close to God's standard of righteousness. And so grace enables you to reject and abandon your own righteousness that you think you might bring to the table to be reconciled with God. And instead, grace freely gives you the perfect righteousness of Christ. You can see that as we move forward. In verse 9, he says, But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, What Paul is mentioning here is what we've already confessed in Romans chapter 3, that that Jesus didn't only die for us. He lived for us. He was perfectly obedient, even to the point of death on the cross. And what Paul is saying, when I look to Christ by faith, 
Christ's perfect righteousness is freely and fully given to me. You'll notice he says the righteousness from God. Free gift. He's there saying, I will give you the very righteousness of my son that is perfect, full, and complete to cover you. And so for my own grandmother, I remember I finally got changed and I I had clothes that were clean and she goes, all right, now you can come in. And for us, we have to have not only the forgiveness of our sins, but a perfect and complete righteousness. And that comes by receiving Christ alone. That we are found in Him. And you'll notice that Paul says that depends on faith. So here is God giving this righteousness as a free gift. And faith is the empty hands that we hold out and say, that's what I need. It's like the story of the prodigal son. He comes home, here he is, he's all in his tattered clothes. And before he's allowed to go into the party that his father is going to throw for him, what does the father clothe him in? He tells his servants, he says, go get the best robe, my robe, and place it on my son. And the gospel is that when you look to Christ by faith, the best robe, the righteousness of Christ himself is given freely to you. When you look to Christ, the perfect righteousness of Christ is freely given to you. You are robed in his righteousness. Listen, when you have a season where you feel like you've been generally faithful in walking with God, still the only reason for your being reconciled to God is the perfect work of Christ. You're robed in his righteousness when you have massively blown it in one day or for a season, and you say, how could I ever come back? You are still clothed in the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of the Son. And Paul says, isn't that reason for gratitude? That we can abandon our own righteousness that we try to work so hard towards and freely receive the perfect righteousness of Christ. Grace freely gives you the perfect righteousness of the Son. And last on our journey, towards the final destination, Paul says that grace makes you more and more like Jesus. You'll notice verse 10. He uses the language again of knowing. He says that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Isn't that what we want? Don't you want to experience power? To have the strength that God himself provides, the power of Christ's own resurrection. And he says that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. One of the things that the, the, the Bible will say is that God predestined us to be conformed, this is Romans 8, to the image of His Son. What is God's goal, His desire, His purpose in your life as you look to Christ? It's to make you like Christ more and more. Now some of you might be thinking, great, 
You just talked about the, the righteousness of Christ freely given to me. Now you're saying, I have to strive to be like Jesus? I mean, what a burden to place on me. I have to be like Jesus. And in one sense, that's what God calls us to, absolutely. But it's not a burden. I love that in Romans 8, it's God who conforms you to the image of Christ. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul says that he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion. He is working to make you more and more like Christ. And even here in this text, some of your translations don't say becoming like him. They say being made like him. The language is in the passive It's what theologians call a divine passive. God is making you more and more like Jesus. That's what God promises to you. And so we want to know Christ more. We want to experience His power. How do we do that? And Paul says if you want to know Christ and experience His resurrection power, you have to share in His sufferings. Grace makes you like Christ in his life. You know, that's one of the things that uh, a New Testament scholar by the name of Richard Gaffin points out. He says, we tend to think sharing in Christ's sufferings only means when we suffer for the gospel. He says, yes, but remember that one of the things our own catechism talks about, our question and answers to teach us truth, it says that Christ underwent all the miseries of this life. And his working in salvation for us, he underwent all the miseries of this life. And Paul says, God cares that when you experience suffering and discouragement and weakness in this life, God's resurrection power is offered to you in the midst of that weakness and hardship. But yes, even more particularly, it says that we may share in his sufferings. Why did he suffer? Because he placed our needs above his own. That's Paul's whole argument in Philippians chapter 2. That God's grace makes you and I more like Christ in his life when we place the needs of others above our own, which often might lead to suffering and weakness in our life. But grace not only makes us like Christ in his life, Grace also makes us like Christ in his death. You can see this in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. And I wish it only said becoming like him. That's where I wish it stopped. And becoming like him, period. Great. But you'll notice what Paul says, becoming like him in his death. That when God makes you more and more like Christ, He wants to give each of you a heart that places the needs of others above your own. And then secondly, like Christ in Philippians chapter 2, you pour yourself out for that person and for their needs. And just to make it tangible for this week, sometimes we can go, that's so general as to not be helpful, but one person this week that you might interact with, Maybe it's simply you might rather be playing video games. You might rather be reading a book in a quiet room. Or you might rather be resting. But you know there is someone in your family that's going through a hard time. You don't know exactly what to say, but you want to go sit with them. And see what their needs might be. And see what encouragement they might have. And if there's any way that you can pour yourself out to meet those needs 
in that moment. That grace makes you more and more like Christ. It's not only God's call to you, but it's what God Himself promises to do. That you will experience His power as you share in His sufferings. And becoming like Him in His death. Placing the needs of others above your own and pouring yourself out for them. But does, does Paul get confused in verse 11? Does he, he says that by any means possible, I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Is he saying, and, and maybe if I do it good enough, I'll attain to the resurrection of the dead. That's not what he's saying. He's saying so that as, as I strive by God's grace to place the needs of others and pour myself out for them, whether I die from old age, uh, whether I die from being stoned to death, whether he dies from getting his head chopped off by the Romans, which that's what's going to happen. He doesn't know it yet. Or whether he dies from a shipwreck or whatever else, by any means possible, Paul says, I know I will attain the resurrection of the dead. Because Christ loved me. He gave himself for me. He's my Lord. Three reasons to be thankful this morning. Uh, the first road stop is that we want to be thankful because grace radically changes what we most deeply value. Above all things, we want to value knowing Christ, my Lord. That grace freely gives you, freely, the perfect righteousness of Christ if you look to Christ by faith alone. And grace makes you more and more like Jesus. Maybe as you sit around the table this week with relatives, we mention one of those things, that God's grace is just that good. Amen? Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you that we haven't simply found comic books in a dusty box that have been down in our basement, but that a Savior has come and found us. And Jesus, that you have given us the surpassing value of knowing you. That you would give us, Jesus, your perfect righteousness, even as you call us to abandon any of our own righteousness that we think we might bring to you. And oh, we want to be made like you. To place the needs of others above our own and to pour ourselves out. Father, make us like Jesus. Holy Spirit, show us the surpassing value of knowing Jesus as we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.